Oh, hi everyone and welcome to episode 20 of Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. I'm Burke. I'm Jen. And um, we're excited to be back with you this week, particularly with the uh, rapid developments in the Aaron Hernandez double murder trial that's taking place in Boston right now. Yeah, so this is Monday, March 13th, and they are into their third week of the trial. I can't believe it. Um, They have gone through upwards of 20-something witnesses thus far. Most of them have seemingly been... um, I know that the bouncer at the club was um, on the stand. We've had some state troopers, uh, emergency responders, um, and also... One of the survivors from yeah. the shooting. <laughs> More, most importantly, one of the survivors from the shooting. Uh, was he shot or just on the scene when... I believe he was shot. Killed? That's what my understanding, because he was shot and he survived, right? He Wasn't he in the back seat of the BMW? I think that's right. And the two people who were killed were in the front seat? I right. believe that's how um, it all went down. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, so I think the most recent developments, um, at least over the past... I'm not sure if this happened today or last week, but they... Um, uh, the two, a couple of state troopers, that's what we call the um, state police out in Massachusetts as opposed to like highway patrol officers um, as they do in California. Um, a couple of state troopers testified about finding the alleged murder weapon, um, which was in the trunk of a car of a woman um, who was an associate of Aaron Hernandez's. She was from Bristol, Connecticut, which is where Hernandez grew up. Um, I believe she was in a car accident out in Western Massachusetts. And when they inventoried the car, they found a briefcase that had the gun, three bullets and some condoms, which is a bunch of random stuff to have in a briefcase. If I do say so myself, um, when asked whether they could really tie Hernandez to the gun, um, the state trooper said that there were no fingerprints. Well, I guess they couldn't find his fingerprints on the gun. His response was, somebody touched that gun, which seems sort of obvious, but... um, Yes. But I guess they have been able to connect the gun to the... as the murder weapon, but um, have not been able to, um, with any physical evidence, connect the gun to Hernandez. Um, That is my understanding, and I think that might have happened today. Um, before they concluded, the court will be uh, quiet tomorrow because of the giant storm happening in Boston. So uh, jurors and the rest of the, the gang don't have to show up until Wednesday. I probably shouldn't have said gang because of the group. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> because of all of the implications that has in this particular case. I thought one of the more interesting things that happened was that it was last week when uh, Aaron Hernandez's team tried to declare a mistrial because... Uh, one of the witnesses walked into the room, sort of acknowledged Hernandez with a head nod, as you do, um, and then when testifying, basically pointed to Aaron Hernandez as the shooter, and this was grounds for a mistrial. My understanding was that there was some sort of motion uh, earlier in the case that Hernandez could not be identified as the shooter, which seems to undermine the whole point of being here in this double homicide trial, but I didn't read that earlier um, motion, so maybe there was there's a method to the madness. Um, I know the, the time change between Massachusetts and California throws me off, so I can never tell if something's happening like today or previously, um, but uh, 
yeah, I think it seems like things are kind of chugging along. Hernandez is um, remaining his affable, jolly self in court, hugging his defense team and slapping them on the back and laughing a lot, which um, I hope he's not doing that from the jury because it seems like tone deaf at the very least. I think that, well, yeah, I hope he isn't either. I know that um, a few weeks ago when the trial first started, they were showing a lot of photographs of uh, the two victims in the car. Yes. It was very uh, graphic um, photographs of like blood and brain matter everywhere. So there was a lot of um, emotion coming out of the gallery and you know people sort of the families of the the victims like ran out of there because they were so distressed and um and i also know that the jury went and took the field trip to the club and right. to the street corner where this all apparently all went down um now has alexander bradley who has featured prominently in both of Aaron hernandez's trials testified yet i thought that he well, perhaps not, because so far it seems like it's really about um, kind of the like forensics. yeah the forensics, um, and I would imagine that if Alexander Bradley had testified, there would have been like big headlines in all of the newspapers that are following the trial. But he is going to be the key witness, and I don't know if we discussed last time, but it is the defense's um, position that it's Bradley is the the actual person who killed these two men in a drug deal gone wrong and that was and are they arguing that Hernandez wasn't even there because apparently there is footage of Hernandez and Bradley together in a parking garage very shortly after the shooting but in a garage nearby where the shooting occurred um, I don't know if they're saying that uh, Hernandez was not there full stop because there is a um, there has been testimony that Hernandez was in the club and then there was an interaction with the two men who were eventually killed. Um, whether or not that was a spilled drink or just some sort of other interaction, uh, that's, you know, that was what the, um, the bouncer testified to, that it was just, not, there wasn't a spilled drink involved. There was just, they were just engaged in a conversation. Um, but even the forerunner that was allegedly involved i mean that was found in the garage of like aaron hernandez's cousin right. so i can't imagine that they're going to argue that he wasn't there at all just he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger um for those of you who may not have been following this trial as closely as we have been uh alexander bradley is aaron hernandez's former friend who hernandez allegedly i don't think he's been charged or convicted of this crime um, shot in the face in florida in 2013 and um, i just learned today that the comment that precipitated um Bradley getting shot in the head was um, he and Hernandez were out at a club in Florida when um, Hernandez thought there were a bunch of cops at the club to which Bradley apparently <laughs> responded yeah there probably are and probably because of the effed up stuff you did in Boston last summer which um, bold move by Bradley since he had <laughs> apparently seen his according to him he had seen his former friend shoot at least two people to death um, so to uh, sort of poke the uh, murdery bear with that <laughs> seems like a poor decision on his part, um, but he did live to tell the tale, so um, 
unfortunate for Aaron Hernandez, I guess. Yeah, so um, I don't know when the prosecution will rest their case and when uh, we'll start seeing the stream of defense witnesses, which may or may not include Josh McDaniel or Bill Belichick. Uh, so I'm sure it'll get more exciting as it goes on. But yeah, it's week three of the Aaron Hernandez double homicide trial. It seems like the estimate, I think, is that the trial is going to run for six weeks. It sounds like it's going to be closer to six at this yeah. point. Um, but they, I mean, even last week when I was following, they had, I mean, they're through like 20-something witnesses already. So it's not like they're moving at a slow clip. Yeah. They're just getting them in and out. And there's a lot of people, apparently. Um, so we will continue to keep you guys all up to date as to what's happening in this. Um, it's not Suffolk County. It's. Suffolk County. Oh, it's Suffolk County? Okay. Bristol is the other one? No. Yes, okay. he was previously convicted. Um, the Owen Lloyd murder um, happened in Bristol County, which is southwest of Boston. Okay. So, and Suffolk County encompasses Boston and some of these surrounding towns. Um, so, keeping with our NFL theme, um, Alden Smith is back in the news. He doesn't. He wants to be back in the news for more positive stuff and uh, for us to write more positive stories about him. And but, actually yelled at some reporters about that. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, he and um, a friend were driving in a car. Was it Thursday afternoon? No, Thursday morning. It wasn't like it wasn't late mo night or early morning. It was, it was like, like around midnight, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she somehow turned and hit a police car and injured the two police officers in the car. Was she arrested for driving under the influence? Or? I mean, according to the police, she was. Alden okay. Smith is telling a very different story <laughs> about what happened. But yes, I believe my understanding was she was arrested. Alden Smith was taken into custody because he was drunk. But not arrested. Right. For, as far as we can tell. He was just held until he's sober, according to the police. And we keep specifying this because of comments Alden Smith has subsequently made. But um, according to police, Alden Smith was held until he um, sobered up. He was I guess he was held on maybe a charge of public intoxication, um, but not charged with any crime. The police said there was no plan to arrest him um, since sitting in a car while drunk if you're not behind the wheel is not a crime. Um, which is why I thought, I guess technically he was out in public, but it seemed a little weird that he was arrested for public intoxication, or I guess taken into custody for public intoxication. Um, but if yeah. he's not being charged, then mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't matter. They just needed a reason not to like stick him in a car and send him home. That's, yeah, that's true. Um, it, who knows? He is, I guess, being investigated for a domestic incident that took place um, recently as well. There's um, an active investigation happening. So Alden Smith has been, he was first signed by the 49ers and was a very productive 49er when he was on the field, but he has had a lot of incidents that have kept him on the field. So um, he was suspended for violating the NFL substance abuse policy. Um, he has been arrested several times. Did I say arrested? I meant suspended in case he was suspended for violation of the NFL substance abuse policy, but he's been arrested at least five times. Right? Didn't yeah, I think that, so. Um, Mostly for operating a vehicle under the influence of some banned substance. Mm -hmm. And arrested um, at the airport because he may or may not have said that he had a bomb to a TSA agent. Uh, and also was involved in some incidents at his home where... Um, he got stabbed trying to break up a fight at his house, but then was apparently charged with um, illegal possession of an assault weapon. 
I guess when the cops showed up, they, they found an assault weapon. Um, eventually those charges were um, reduced to misdemeanors uh, and he continued on with his playing career because that happened back in 2013, well, he got stabbed in 2012. 2013, the court case happened um, and he didn't take his leave of the league until 2015. So. Yes, so he's been out of the league since November of 2015. Uh, the, he was suspended for a year for violating the league substance abuse policy. He applied for reinstatement in November of 2016. Uh, it was delayed until March, but then there was this incident, which again, you know, he was a passenger in a car that happened to hit a police car with police officers inside. So um, it's not a it's not a great look, but certainly it's not unlawful. Yeah. Um, so what's odd about this whole thing is that Alden Smith was seen by reporters exiting a police station and um, they were asking him a lot of questions. And he then proceeded to just like stop walking, leaned up against some random person's car, and then started saying like, I wasn't held here. I was just visiting a friend who's locked up. Um, they kept asking him, had he been detained? Did he, was he the driver in the accident? And he mm -hmm. kind of like laughed and yelled at people. The whole thing was a really odd scene, mm -hmm. but um, he, in summary, he is insisting that he was not held or detained in any way. Um, uh, by the police as part of this incident. And I wonder if he is being purposefully uh, obtuse and uh, n not kind of coming out and saying that he was being held for any kind of criminal issue because his reinstatement hearing oh. decision is coming down this month. I would, I would assume that um, he probably was. I think the bigger problem for him is that domestic incident, although... I'm assuming that the domestic incident is separate and apart from the car incident. Right. There was about, I think, like a three-week separation. Between the domestic incident and the car incident? Yes. Yeah. So, Alden Smith, you know, good luck to you. <laughs> um, there's been just a long history of um, problems with with his behavior in public and um, and violations of various policies. But... You know, as I said, he was a really productive member of the 49ers when he was actually on the field. So. And he wants everyone to know that he's a good person. That's what he shouted at the reporters oh, that's right. at some point during this really awkward interview that's on TMZ, for those of you who would like to watch. <laughs> um, our last NFL-related story, and we don't mean to be NFL-centric, but it just that's where the chips fell this week, um, was that... Is that... Um, I believe it's 1,800 former NFL players filed suit um, against the NFL, essentially alleging that the NFL has a culture that disregards player safety and federal guidelines on handling narcotics and painkillers. So this complaint was originally filed in 2015, um, but has been recently amended after you know very lengthy discovery process, access to documents or depositions of witnesses. Um, so an amended complaint was just recently filed. So the amended complaint is 74 pages long in case anybody is interested. Um, and it basically describes this, uh, basically this culture of getting players back on the field as quickly as possible, either by use of um, opiates, uh, narcotics, or other painkillers. 
um, without providing players with the information about potential side effects mm -hmm. and long-term effects of the use of these um, painkillers and opiates, and also anti-inflammatories, sorry. Um, so one example that's cited in um, some news reports about the story is the um, uh, information from Utopia Evans, who is the widow of a man by the name of Charles Evans, who used to play for the Baltimore Ravens, um, who testified in a deposition that her husband would just take an envelope that was unlabeled, but um, believed to be full of Motrin and Percocet that was given to him by the team's trainers whenever he played for um, the Ravens. He retired in 2001 and became a sideline reporter um, but remained addicted to painkillers um, throughout the rest of his life. He died in 2008 of heart failure due to an enlarged heart, despite no family history of heart problems. And according to the American Heart Association, regular use of anti-inflammatories can increase the risk of heart attack and stroke um, from 10% to 50%. It's not clear. It sounds like they haven't been able to link Evan's death um, from his heart troubles to his use of um, anti-inflammatories, but um, I guess, what is it? There's um, correlation, uh, if not causation, causation. there. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, troubling, Yes, it is troubling. <laughs> so, um, in the complaint, it describes that in calendar year 2012 alone, on average, each team was prescribed 5,777 doses of anti-inflammatories, which is Tordal, I believe, and 2,270 doses of narcotics. And um, if you break down the math, and, um, and CNN in its most recent article about this um, from today actually broke that down, and on average, because each team has about 53 players, this comes out to... Where did I just lost my place? Um, oh, sorry. This comes out to about 150 doses of drugs per player each year. Good lord. Which is, which is insane, considering you have 18 games training camp and four preseason games. It's 22 games. It's not 18 games. It's 16, isn't it? Yes, 16. they've not gone to 18. Sorry. They <laughs> yes, they have not. So that's 20 games plus camp. But, I mean, it's 150 doses of drugs per player each year. That is an amount that it just boggles the mind. Um, and there's also um, cited in the complaint a 20, 2006 memo from the then head trainer for the Minnesota Vikings complaining about how um, the Vikings were the only team in the league not regularly using Tordal um, on their players and how that put the team at a competitive disadvantage, um, which seems like something that even if you thought that way, uh, you should probably not put down in writing that could then be discovered in litigation. Um, this was from a CNN story about the um, the complaint, and they sought to talk to the Vikings and to the head, former head trainer, Eric Sugarman. Um, no one wanted to talk to them, unsurprisingly. Unsurprisingly. <laughs> so the plaintiffs are seeking, obviously, compensatory and punitive damage against NFL teams, um, which may include uh, medical monitoring of the former players and probably enhanced uh, retiree health benefits. Um, one of the funny things that I think came out was that the complaints were initially part of a sealed document, um, but because the complaint was redacted improperly, you could actually read the full complaint. Um, so as a result, not maybe not as a result, but you know, the complaint has since been unredacted and unsealed, but that's just pretty terrible when you're trying to protect the privacy and confidentiality of some things and you just did it wrong and people got that private confidential information anyways. 
Um, and I'm assuming that it's mostly related to people's names and medical conditions. That's normally what you would redact for um, because most people understand that when you file a complaint with the court, it becomes a public document. Um, yeah, what's weird is you would think it would be the plaintiffs in charge of redacting the document and they would be particularly sensitive to hiding the private medical information of their own um, clients. But I guess when you're talking about 1,800 people... Um, yeah, that's true. It doesn't say who did the improper redaction, so it might have been them anyways. Yeah. I mean, it might just have been the program that they used, like Adobe sometimes. But the highlight to redact is, is a little strange, so... Yeah, this is a like a nerdy um, yeah. <laughs> technical court issue, court filing issue, I guess, is that like the if you use a computer program to do the redaction, it doesn't always work correctly, but because a lot of courts now require that you upload searchable PDF documents, mm -hmm. you don't really have the option um, to do what we used to do, which is print the documents out and physically, <laughs> yes, redact, physically them, redact them and then scan it back in because yeah. those are obviously not... Not searchable. Generally not searchable. I think you can convert them to searchable documents, but that's a whole mess in and of itself. So, mm -hmm. so of course, the NFL has strongly denied wrongdoing or, you know, that's just sort of par for the course. So, um, as we said, it's just the complaint at this stage, and then there was some discovery, but we'll, we'll be monitoring this case closely like the NFLPA will be. Um, this seems like a really great or horrible example of how long it takes things to work their way through the court system in this mm -hmm. country because like the complaint is i mean that's basically the first step mm -hmm. in commencing a litigation yeah um and so they took step one initially back in 2005 and now they're 2015 sorry 2015 that's what i was thinking in my head <laughs> um but now they're just kind of like re doing mm -hmm. step one two years later so yeah it's oh absolutely and i mean it's 1800 former players and um so they probably need to be certified as a class right and that takes time because notices all have to go out to everyone people you have to give time for people to object to being in the class and i mean so it's not only like the stuff that goes on with court but it's all the ancillary procedure that goes on too so it is not for the faint of heart or people who are impatient i'll just no, and that's what I think is, I mean, setting aside how you feel about um, the NFL and its treatment of its former players, I think the saddest thing is that there's no, whoever's at fault, there's no denying that you're dealing with a bunch of sick people here and mm -hmm. they need financial help and this process takes a really long time, yeah. which I think is in part why it was believed that they settled, um, the plaintiffs were agreeable to settling the concussion lawsuit or one of the concussion mm -hmm. lawsuits because yeah. like, oh, absolutely. they don't have the time to wait for this mm -hmm. to work its way through the courts. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and it's also, aside from you know the time um, that it takes, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily want to have to go through trial either because one, it's not guaranteed that you're going to win and get anything, but two, it does take as outlooks as Burke and I have discussed in the past, um, you know, quite an emotional and physical toll on you to have to be really deeply involved in this process. So um, sometimes, you know, settling doesn't necessarily mean that you think you have a good case or a bad case, but there are other factors involved in making those decisions. Um, so wrapping up with the NFL, we're going to move on to our celebrity gossip <laughs> portion of the show. Um, there's been, it's been, um, 
fairly, I haven't actually followed uh, along with Paula Patton and uh, Robin Thicke, but aren't they in the start of their custody thing? Not to spring this on you or anything. Yeah, I believe so. There hasn't been, um, so one source that I often use um, for my celebrity gossip is People Magazine, and they've been covering this story pretty extensively, and I have not seen any updates, any updates recently, um, yeah. or at least not since the last time we uh, spoke. Robin Thicke did post a very um, heartwarming message to his dead dad. Um, I guess it was Robin Thicke's 40th birthday, and he posted something oh. on Instagram about, you know, missing his father, which is unfortunate um so the reason why it's been quiet according to dmz is that um sources familiar with the situation have indicated that mr thick and ms Patton are um working out details of the custody arrangement between themselves and um, not going to court to uh work out custody so huh. so that would be positive for everyone around i think but um Moving to non-positive stories, uh, so Danny Masterson, who is an actor and probably most famous for his role on The 70s Show, That 70s Show, um, is being investigated over allegations of sexual assault. Uh, these allegations um, centered around three women having recently come forward to disclose that they were sexually assaulted by Masterson in the early 2000s. Um, some of the... the the stuff around these allegations really um, is related to Masterson's involvement with Scientology and I think the allegation is that these women tried to come forward earlier but were told by the Church of Scientology either not to or they were somehow um, silenced or quashed or what have you. Um, and so the reason why this is coming up now is because of Leah Remini's show, right? Right, so apparently these women, or at least one of the women, saw Leah Remini's new show. Um, it's a docu-series, I think, on a &E mm -hmm. about exposing the deep, dark secrets of the Church of Scientology. Um, and so one of Masterson's alleged victims um, saw the show, went to speak to Remini, and Remini put her in contact with the LAPD, um, who's now Los Angeles Police Department, who's now investigating the, um, the case. And some of the comments Remini made, apparently um, Michael Pena is in the Church of Scientology and his picture is up in like the police department's offices. I don't really know if it's based on his recent involvement in the movie Chips or he was in that, sh that movie End of Watch. Was that set in LA? Uh, yeah, I don't know. But normally in state offices, you would have a picture of the governor and maybe the police commissioner. Right. Not. Why there's a picture of an actor up on a wall is kind of unclear. But anyway, mm -hmm. Leo Remini's point was simply that you have a picture of a prominent Scientologist. Although, how prominent is he? I didn't know he was a Scientologist. I had no idea until you told me at lunch today. <laughs> uh, not that I'm the like keeper of all Scientology <laughs> members, but it still seemed odd. In any event, um, her point was it's hard for these people to come in and want to talk about crimes that the church has committed when um, they have so many famous members, I guess, who might mm -hmm. be uh, have their photographs up in police departments. Um, offices so yeah. what relevance that really has to this particular case because it doesn't sound like these women went to the police 
when the um, alleged assaults first happened, it sounded like they were talked out of it by the church um, based on the allegations that Leah Remini has, has made and um, also a journalist, Tony Ortega, who runs an anti-Scientology website and who appears to have broken this story. Um, uh, so I don't know that the police like refused to investigate it in the first place or if these women just didn't go to the police. Yeah, they were just not aware. Yeah. Um, so Masterson uh, has issued a statement um, indicating that they were aware of the allegations. The, uh, the event took place, according to the statement, 16 years ago. Um, and the woman who is making the allegation also, she, according to the statement, has made numerous inconsistent claims that she was previously raped by at least three other famous actors and musicians, um, that she had threatened to beat up uh, Masterson's current wife, and um, other such demands. Um, there is no statute of limitations in California for aggravated sexual assault, which could include rape. Um, sexual assault that's not aggravated, and we can spend some time defining that for you if you'd like, um, is six years. So I think the fact that they're looking into this now, 16 years after the fact, would seem to me to indicate that it was an aggravated sexual assault. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, they don't mention the two other women who've come forward because they thought I read that it was three women. Who yeah, had. I believe I read the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, not clear sort of what the status of that review, the review of those two cases is, mm -hmm. or investigation, I guess, um, not review. Um, yeah, so, uh, it's just in the probably just as we said in the initial stages where the police are reviewing the allegations and um seeing what they can come up with and whether or not he will be charged with a crime um but uh as we were discussing um his current wife is ill and needs a new kidney I believe so she's had excuse me some kind of kidney ailment for quite some time and it uh i believe her um dialysis treatments are not working anymore, mm -hmm. so she is looking for a kidney transplant. Um, so, uh, I, when I initially read the story, I did not realize that these were allegations of an assault that had occurred allegedly years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, it seemed like Danny Masterson was a real monster, that his wife is like horribly, horribly ill, and that he's running oh. around assaulting people. Um, not to say that he's not terrible for assaulting people when he didn't have a sick wife, but... Allegedly. Um, allegedly, yes. Um, but, but yeah, he, I think, is spending um, a lot of time focused on his family and his wife's health, which may be why we're not hearing a ton about this mm -hmm. in the press, other than his um, last statement that these allegations are untrue and just meant to boost Leah Remini's TV show ratings. Correct. Um, our last allegation of aggravated sexual assault um, comes from Mike Com Comrie. 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 Um, who is a former professional hockey player, most recently played with the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he is probably Go best. <laughs> he is probably best known to um, the rest of the non-hockey uh, <laughs> fan world as um, Hillary Duff's ex-husband. And he is um, currently under investigation for alleged sexual battery, which under California law involves a person touching an intimate part of another person without their consent. 
Um, so the um, allegations were made in Los Angeles. Um, the process seems to be kind of moving forward pretty quietly. I don't think he has made any public statements about this, as far as I can tell. Um, attempts to reach out to him and his representatives uh, have not, uh, those calls haven't been returned. Um, luckily for Mike Comrie, he is heir to a um, giant furniture store chain fortune <laughs> so he will have plenty of money to defend against these allegations um but the the details i think remain somewhat sketchy and uh the investigation continues hillary duff has also not come out and said anything about these allegations um and after they started their divorce um she made lots of complimentary comments about him um not that that's relevant here but just an interesting fact i guess so some of the articles that i've read uh, essentially boiled down to that um he met this woman at a bar in early february and they the two of them went back to his condo where she claims that he raped her multiple times um but sources close to him have indicated that they actually have known each other for a long time and that the uh, sex was consensual. Um, I think the twist here is that they were not alone in this February sexual encounter. That there was there was a third woman there, a third person there who was a woman. Um, I didn't mean to imply that there were three women there. So a third person there who um, was involved, and she has not filed a complaint. Um, whereas the accuser went immediately to Cedar Sinai afterwards and um, had a rape kit done, um, hmm. and then has. Uh, filed these complaints or allegations with the LAPD to have them investigated. So I thought that was, it's not your usual, yeah, I maybe guess, it is for Hollywood, I don't know. Uh, theoretically, you would have a sort of neutral witness to the situation. Yeah. Who, um, I assume the police will speak to her and find out what her view of this whole situation was, but... Um, that is, I do remember reading about that, that the two of them were not alone in his apartment. So mm -hmm. um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Um, I think part of the challenge is often that, you know, it's it tends to boil down to a, you know, a he said, she said, or not to place gender roles on the victims of assault, but it's, you know, one person's war against the other. Mm -hmm. um, so having somebody else who is there, um, it will be interesting to see how that impacts the investigation. Yeah, it's, um, you're right. It's not, it's not usual for you to have direct witnesses to allegations of sexual assault. Um, except, of course, in like the case of Derek Rose, but there, I mean, all three of the men yeah. were accused of attacking the alleged victim in that case, whereas mm -hmm. here um, it doesn't sound like the alleged victim has said that the other woman played any part in the assault on her. So, um. as an aside, is the brick? I mean, I've heard of the brick before. Is that mostly Canadian? Yes. Okay. That's what I although I think they own some part of a Chicago sports team. Oh, I don't like, know why I'm that's stuck in my head, but. Uh, Interesting. Okay. It sounds like it might be in Chicago and then the Midwest. Oh, okay. Aside from Canada. Yes. Mm. So that's what we have for you this week. It's um, 
sort of a short week for us, but we didn't want to leave you lingering too long since we had such a, a long break um, from the holidays and that. So you know, just want to let you remind you guys that we exist. Um, so hopefully we will have more in the next week or so with more updates about Aaron Hernandez and um, the other comings and goings of our favorite celebrities and athletes. Yes, and um, Mike Comrie's dad owns a piece of the Chicago Cubs. Oh. So. Like a big piece or a little? La-di-da. No, uh, he became a minority owner and limited partner of the Chicago Cubs baseball team. I don't actually know what that means. Um, I mean, I understand what a minority owner yes, means, but, but I'm not what, sure like the what the distinction yeah. is of a limited partner either. Oh. So, um, yeah, apparently he's... Uh, Super duper rich, and um, and yeah, that's where my comrade did not play hockey for the money. So it's nice to not have to, yeah. <laughs> but you have a, a trust fund to fall back on. It also looks like he owns part of the um, BC Lions Canadian Ooh. football team. They play at BC Place. Yeah, they have a lot of boring names for uh, sporting. Of mm -hmm. Uh, arenas, Venues, yeah. yeah, up in Canada. Yeah, I know the where the Canucks play. I think it's like just the, I want to say it's just the Rogers Center or something like that. Yes, which is their telecommunications giant up there. Yeah, yeah. And the Bell Center is where the Canadians yeah. in, play in Montreal, which is basically a cell phone company. And, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's oh maybe it's Telus now because isn't Telus and Roger? Anyways, Burke and I could probably talk about Canadian. Um, phone carriers for, for hours, but we won't bore you. Um, anyways, we will be back, um, and we hope that you will join us um, in the future. Yeah, sorry for that going off the rails a little bit at the end, <laughs> but it, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, be back with you in a couple weeks. Bye! Bye!